You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of James, in a, which I've entitled Laws That Liberate. And we're looking at verses 9, 10, and 11 today. So if you don't mind turning there in your Bible, chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. And if it's at all comfortable, easy, would you please stand up as we read this passage together? James continues by saying, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask as we look to your word this morning that you will help us. You'll give us insight and understanding that we will not only know what the text says, Lord, but we will also know what it says to us individually. That, Lord, you have a wonderful way of personalizing your truth to the moment and the needs of each of us. And so we ask, God, that you would bless us in that way today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think if there's any issue over which Christians become double-minded, it is the issue of money, what our position is supposed to be. In fact, I think the conflict was well illustrated in the uh, movie Fiddler on the Roof, where Perchik is talking to Tevia, and Perchik makes the statement, he says, money is the world's curse, to which Tevia said, may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. Uh, <laughs> So speaking from the position of poverty, you can understand how he thought it was about time he got cursed a little. See, most of human history, the world has been divided between the rich and the powerful and everyone else. And even today, when we talk about the, the 1% who control 50% of the world's wealth, we have to understand that it was even more the case in, the in ancient times, particular biblical times, most people literally lived praying, give us today our daily bread. The idea of working today to feed yourself tonight was a fact of life for the vast majority of people, and it still is for many on the planet today. So it's an important question for us to ask is, how did the church manage that disparity? Because when we look at the church in Jerusalem, even at this time, you realize that there would have been a few people who were very wealthy, and everybody else would have been not wealthy. And the relationships often could be strained and could be skewed. And it's that issue that we find that James goes right after. And what they did is, they didn't, the early church didn't come up with a policy or a theology. There isn't really even kind of a clear teaching. There were no orders coming down from headquarters telling them how to manage this situation. Instead, what we find is a spontaneous moving of the Holy Spirit in what we might really just simply call an expression of God's grace from his people to one another. For example, in Acts chapter 2, it just simply states, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. 
selling their possessions and good, and they gave to anyone as he had need. Or as the New Living Translation put it, they shared everything they had. Now, when I was first, uh, first started serving the Lord, I got involved in a Christian commune. And the idea of this commune was that we were going to live this passage in the most literal sense. So quite literally, we had everything in common. We had one closet, and basically we all shared our clothing, we shared our food, we shared our money. I mean, it was 100%. But as time, as this organization grew, it became more complicated, and so different levels of responsibility began to be filled by other people. And over time, what I discovered is that we were all equal, but some people became more equal than others. And there's a dynamic that many times people think, well, this is really the ideal of Christianity. We don't see this being carried forward in any kind of communal thing. In fact, he's not talking about communalism or communism. He's talking about charis, which is a Greek word for grace. And we find that as this grace began to grow into the church, the practice began to grow, where later on in chapter 4, it says in verse 32 that all the believers were one in heart and mind, that no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had, and there were no needy persons among them, because from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now again, I want to emphasize this point, lest it be lost, that there was nobody telling anybody that they had to do anything. But simply the Holy Spirit began to move in people's lives, and they no longer saw them as separate individuals, thinking only in terms of how they might secure their own welfare and future. But they began to become aware that they were a family, they were a community. And when somebody had something and they saw somebody in need, they responded in the same way that many times a parent might respond to a child or a family member would respond to another in need. Because what we see developing here, again, was not community, communism. We are seeing the development of a divine community. Now, <clears throat> But there also began to arise problems as the system went forward, beginning with a, a cute couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. I say cute, I've never seen a picture of them, uh, but the bottom, bottom line is they began to behave in a way that threatened this sense of community and unity that the church was growing into. And we're told about it in verse 5 where they did something very greedily that motivated them to lie. It says, Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money? And most importantly, Peter says, did it not belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, it was your money to do with anything you wanted to do. It. No one was requiring you to give your money in this way. 
Because the issue was not holding back some of the money. The issue was that you pretended to do something that you did not. You lied about what was going on, probably in the hopes of personal advantage. He goes on, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And the next phrase is self-explanatory. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So that essentially we say that's such a, a dramatic response by the hand of God. Yet what we find God is doing is quenching something that threatened the very integrity of the community of believers by injecting what we call parsimony or simony, the idea that suddenly I use my money as a way of leveraging myself into a place of authority or power or importance. My supposition is that Ananias saw what others were doing and how they were being recognized within the church, not because of their giving, but because of their calling. And he mixed those two things together and thought, if they're getting promotion, then I'll pretend to do the same thing, that I might be promoted. And God recognizing the danger of this, of taking a man who was motivated by self-promotion and greed and letting him rise in importance would destroy the very heart and integrity of the church as I'm afraid to say, many of us have had the opportunity to witness throughout the church's history. But we also find that there was another problem in chapter 6, the very following chapter of a kind of a favoritism or a partiality or a discrimination within the church along the same lines. You see, in the synagogue city system of the day, it was the practice that every Friday afternoon, the deacons of the synagogue would go around to the, the widows and the orphans, and they would provide them with foods and money to help them get through the next week. And it was a regular part of what they called the distribution well, it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing and the Grecian Jews, in other words, Jews who had come from the Greek and Roman part of the world and had moved to Jerusalem, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, that is Jews who were born in Galilee or Judea. And by the way, there was a distinction simply based upon culture and also language, or I should say dialect. So that just like we have dialects throughout our country, there were various dialects. You could tell if a man was from Galilee because he had a Galilean dialect. If he was a Jew who had come from Rome, he had that flavor of Latin language in his speech or any other Greek world. And so there was a certain degree of discrimination there was a certain degree of bigotry that those who were Hebraic Jews, in other words, they were born in Palestine or in Judea in particular, they had their own dialect and they tended to look down on people who had come from other parts of the world. So there was already a prejudicial issue here, but it said the, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Now, we're not told why that was happening. It could have been a simple problem of bad management. It could have been bad attitude. There could have been bigotry and prejudice. It also may have come because of shortages. Whatever the reason, we're not told. But some have suggested that 
the resources of the church were being exhausted because the rich were selling off their properties and giving it to the poor, and therefore they didn't have monies to meet these needs, which is kind of possible, but I think you're assuming that people stopped working and stopped making money, which was not the case. But the bottom line is there was one reason why shortages were beginning to arise, and that was increased persecution. As more and more people were converting to Christ, they were also at the same time being excommunicated from the non-Messianic, the non-Jesus-believing synagogues. In fact, we read about in John chapter 9, again in chapter 12, how this had become a practice even before Jesus' persecution, where we read that anyone who acknowledges Jesus as the Christ would be put out of the synagogues. So if you gave your life to Christ, you would be put out of a synagogue. Now, today that doesn't seem like much to us. You know, if you go to a certain church and you get crossways, you can just leave there and go someplace else and get a fresh start. But you see, in their world, you were born into a synagogue. All of your family relationships and friendships were in that community. Even your employment was linked to those other people. To be excommunicated from your synagogue meant not only did you lose your worship location, you lost your friendships, your family, all of your relationships, and usually your employment, and you became impoverished. So we find a system that begins to develop and then we find that violent persecution began to happen as excommunication was not an effective enough tool to stop people from converting, they began to attacking them. In fact, we read in in chapter 8 of Acts that Saul began to destroy the church. That's Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And all except the apostles were scattered. So that immediately the church began to go through what we might call somewhat of a demographic crisis. Because all the people who were in the church scattered, they fled to to outside of Judea, some to Galilee, some to Samaria. We know that even as far as Antioch and Syria to the north. But not everybody fled because there were certain people who could not flee. The unhealthy, the unwealthy, basically the old and the poor had to stay where they were. They had no choice. And so here's an added dimension. In fact, unemployment and persecution led to widespread widespread poverty within the church in Jerusalem. So much so that Paul even tells us later on in Romans 15 and verse 27, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia, that referring to the the Greek churches in those regions of the world, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings." So later on, when we read in the book of Acts, how that Paul goes to Jerusalem and he's arrested and then sent off to Caesarea where he spends two years in prison and then is sent from Caesarea to Rome to be tried the first time, that the reason he was going to Jerusalem in the first place was to bring the collection of these monies from the Greek and Roman churches that he was bringing as a donation to help relieve the poverty of the church that's in Jerusalem. Now, Why is that background important? It's because I have to fill 45 minutes. No, it's it's important because 
Adversity has one of two effects upon us. It can shape us or it can misshape us. In other words, when I go through a time of difficulty, how I respond will lead to certain developments of my character. It can be a positive or it can be a negative. One way we often phrase it is we can become better or we can become bitter. Now, since none of you have ever struggled with bitterness, I know that's not an issue for you. But we understand that when adversity comes into our life, how we understand adversity... Do we see it as coming from the hand of God as James is trying to convince us? That as I coined years ago when I went through a series of things, I said, whatever hurts me, heals me. Whatever humbles me, helps me. And I say that to myself frequently because I'm trying to believe it. Because when something hurts me, we feel like it's something that really hinders me. When something humbles me, we really believe it's something that harms us. And yet what James keeps on telling us, and other writers of the New Testament have been telling us, is that's not true. That because I'm in Christ, and those things can only touch me because I am in Christ, that if it hurts me, it's going to ultimately lead to my healing. If it humbles me, it's ultimately going to help me because God exalts the humbles it gives grace to the humble, and he resists those who are proud. So basically, we're confronted with that choice. So here's the church in Jerusalem. They are being devastated economically. They're facing unemployment. They're facing persecution. And how do they respond? Is it going to shape them and deepen them in their devotion to God? Or is it going to be something that's going to cause them to become, well, to look at a rich man with a different set of eyes, not as a brother in Christ, but as an opportunity to improve my own situation. Let me tell you, this has been one of the diseases of the Christian church throughout its history. To look favorably upon people who have material resources because we want to access them for our own purposes and our own intentions. Well, that this was a problem becomes very clear because later on in chapter 2, James addresses it again. He says in verses 1 through 9, he says, As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves with evil thoughts? It show, if you show favoritism, you sin. Why again is James so concerned? Because he said ultimately it will destroy the loving character of the church, the moment we begin to prefer one person over another. We get a sense of how big a problem this was by the fact that James revisits this issue three times in this short little letter. I mean, let's admit it. There is a, a natural tendency to fawn and to favor rich people over poor people. That is to to value or devalue a person based upon their outward circumstances and not their intrinsic value. I mean, 
It's easy to see one person who is rich and high-born or powerful as more worthy than those who lack such benefits. I mean, after all, some countries have what they call royalty. And the reason is because if you are born royalty, say, for example, in England, your DNA is far superior to everyone else. Prince Charles proves that. As one English tour guide told me one time when we were touring London, she said, they are a dysfunctional lot, aren't they? I said, yeah, yeah. But you see, we still tend to treat those people differently and not just a matter of being courteous or gracious, which we should be to everyone, but in a sense, in God's eyes, everyone should be treated like they are royalty and not just some who wear that label. But I tell you, ask any woman, when she gets dressed up and is wearing expensive things and she goes down to the store, she's going to get better service, she's going to get a better seat in the restaurant, and often long, oftentimes she'll get a better discount because they know that people judge by outward appearance. And in the Jerusalem church, what happened was they were giving them what's called the place of honor. There was the seat that basically said, if you sit in it, it's because you are a notable person. And the tragedy of it is, whether they were more honorable or not didn't matter. They were simply there because they were wealthy. And there was a hope that largesse would expand to others. Which makes James's opening comments on this such, uh, such a stark contrast. When he begins by saying, the brother in humble circumstances, which is a kind way of saying, the guy who's really poor, ought to take pride, that is to glory, find his glory, not in his material circumstances, but in his high position in Christ. In other words, what James is really trying to imply is the moment we give our lives to Christ, regardless of who we are or what our station or position in life is, there is an exaltation that we now become part of. That in the kingdom of men, there may be levels of importance, but in the kingdom of God, we are all sons and daughters of God. We are all priests and princes of our Savior. We will all reign with King Christ in glory. And he doesn't say that, that we might boastfully compare ourselves or things of that nature, but at the same time understanding that there is an inherent dignity that we receive the moment we give our life to Christ. Now, why is it important to say that to the poor man? Because oftentimes those who are poor or those who are powerless view themselves through that lens and either develop a resentment and a hatred towards somebody who has something more, a jealousy because somebody has, been more, has more opportunity or advantages than we have, and we become misshapen because of our circumstance. And we often look at life saying, well, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And life is unfair. And we go through all of this kind of stuff and realize, really, quite seriously, if God wanted you and me to be rich, we would. Because what, saw, what David said in, in 1 Chronicles 29, he says, you make a man rich and you make a man poor. 
And I don't say that just simply as justification, but I think that, that in our culture where we don't have a nobility by DNA, we have a, a, a nobility by MBA. We have nobility by material possessions and advantage, and our royalty are those who are the richest amongst us. So that if your name is, is Gates or Jobs or Buffett or something along that line, you suddenly are elevated in the eyes of other people because it's assumed that you hold a more important position of status in the culture than somebody named Ortiz with an E. A Hispanic who can't even spell it right. <laughs> and I think that's the nature of human nature, but it isn't the heart of God. And that becomes the whole point. That he's saying to the man who may be in the eyes of the world, not an important significant, God often says, he who is the least will become the greatest. How literally do you believe that's true? Sometimes, you know, I think people in my position can sit back and say, well, you know, we've been used by God, done some mighty things. God really, his power has been upon me. His anointing has been upon my, you know. And I, I think I'm going to stand before the president and say, Lord, here I am. And he says, oh, you. Yeah, I remember you. Uh, can you get out of the way? I think something more important is coming. Because Jesus basically said that when we put ourselves in the high seat, he will say, step down and make room for one more worthy has now appeared. And that's why he basically says, you have been put in this high position. You might say, what high position have I been put in? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. J.B. Phillips renders this way, how happy are you when you own nothing? How happy are you right now owning nothing? Because I hear all sorts of people who are going through all sorts of angst, especially young people, because, well, how can I ever afford to buy a house? How can I ever afford to do this? And how can I ever afford to do that? And I wish I could have this, and I wish I could have that. And you're operating under this illusion that if you had those access points in life, you would be so much better off. Is, is Phillips just off the reservation with this translation? I like the way... Peterson puts it, he said, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of 